Hi everyone and welcome to South Asia Sphere, Himal South Asia's monthly roundup of news events and developing stories across South Asia. I'm Raisa and I'm joined by my colleagues Shubanga, Marlon and Shweta. Hi guys. Hello. Hi. Hi. So our big story in this edition is the recent resurgence of Me Too in Sri Lanka's newsrooms and looking at proposed solutions to sexual harassment across the region. In around South Asia in 5 minutes, we're talking about Twitter losing legal protection in India and its display of a distorted map of the country, military corruption and jade mining in Myanmar, and Bangladesh's journey out of LDC status and Afghan border control. Let's begin with Me Too. Thanks Raisa. Um so last month uh, in June a uh, number of women journalists from Sri Lanka uh, and some non Sri Lankans who had worked in Sri Lanka's newsrooms in the past posted a number of stories on Twitter uh, of the sexual harassment they faced while at work. Uh, now this included a range of incidents some from several years back some more recent. Uh, but the key message uh, was that sexual harassment has been going on and continues to be a serious problem in Sri Lankan media industry. uh and uh now most media outlets reporting on these tweets and responses to them uh have called it you know me too movement finally making some dent in the country um although it should be mentioned that similar efforts to start conversations around sexual harassment in workplace they've they've been made in the past uh those efforts um but they didn't really have the same kind of media impact we're seeing now but i think the other important point that came across in these conversations was also that you know a lot of these incidents have gone largely unpunished or have not even been investigated um because many in the media sector um or the media fraternity uh continue to defend the harassers or undermine um the allegations in in some cases it was also clear that women facing abuse and harassment are often silent um because of fear of legal reprisals um even when allegations uh, and perpetrators were unnamed exactly shobanga Now this issue was actually raised to the Minister of Mass Media Kehliya Ramukwella at a briefing on the 23rd of June. The minister said that there has not been any official complaint so far and if there is a complaint the ministry would investigate and take action. But it seemed he was quite unaware of what was going on. Yes Marlon and um you know this lack of awareness seems to be a bit of a trend among government officials in the South Asian region mm-hmm. um i guess we all remember Imran Khan's recent comments in an interview noting that women wearing little clothing was a contributing factor to rape which has created public outcry across uh, Pakistan Yes Raisa it's it's quite a disturbing trend so back to the minister's statement Uh, it led to news outlets here and around the world who reported that the ministry would take action and launch a formal investigation but on the 29th the, the minister clarified his statement stating that the ministry will not launch an investigation based on social media reports unless a formal complaint is made to the police or the media ministry he also said that uh, launching an investigation into any media institution without a formal complaint will be seen as uh, interfering in the media yes and i have to say um i i don't think i've ever heard the media ministry uh, sound so concerned about media interference 
but <laughs> glad to hear that they are they are concerned about it. Um, but yeah, so right now several solutions have been proposed in Sri Lanka. Um, a number of people, for example, have been talking about introducing sexual harassment policies in newsrooms. Um, now there's been an IFJ report uh, from 2015 on media and gender um, focused on Sri Lanka, which noted that only 12.5% of the survey respondents had access to a kind of an official complaint cell or a sexual harassment policy at their workplace. Over 57% of women who responded and 42% of men had no such mechanism in their newsrooms. So as a result, people have been talking about perhaps drafting sexual harassment policies for their workplaces. Apart from that, um, the Sri Lanka Young Journalists Association also wrote to the Government Information Department and they called for an impartial ombudsman to handle cases of sexual harassment. Now, personally, I have to say I'm a little skeptical of government involvement in these processes. Um, I mean, the Young Journalists Association did call for impartiality, but given the kind of politicization of bodies like the Press Council, it's not clear whether they would actually be able to achieve this impartiality, um, not to mention Kehlia Rambukwala's kind of um, lukewarm response. So I'm personally a bit skeptical of that. Um, but another important thing that they did point out in that letter was that harassment is also pervasive in Singhala and Tamil media, and that hasn't yet kind of come out. So that was an important aspect that was discussed. Apart from that, there have also been calls to expedite the ratification of ILO's Convention 190, which protects workers from gender-based violence and harassment. Uh, Sri Lanka is actually in the process of ratifying it, but the process has been delayed. So this kind of spate of stories has now revived conversations to push that through a bit faster. And if we look at the mechanisms in place in India, for example, in 2013, India enacted the Sexual Harassment of Women Act, the Workplace Act, to protect workers in both formal and informal sectors. Now, this act was a significant legislative step for India, but for most women workers, especially those in the informal sector, the government enforcement of this law is quite weak. And there was a Human Rights Watch report from last year that finds that while women in India are increasingly speaking out against sexual abuse at work, uh, many, particularly in the informal sector, are still constrained by stigma, fear of retribution, and institutional barriers. The report also highlighted some key recommendations where the government should, in collaboration with civil society organizations, activists, and trade unions, enforce this act. Uh, monitor the operation of committees, um, sanctioning em employers who fail to comply and ensuring access to remedies for victims, including complaint mechanisms and compensation. So looking at the mechanisms that exist in Pakistan, in 2010, uh, Pakistan introduced the Protection Against Harassment of Women at Workplace Act, which stipulates all public and private organizations to adopt an internal code of conduct and complaint appeals mechanism aimed at establishing a safe working environment free of intimidation and abuse for all working women. In a survey conducted by the Dawn newspaper in 2018, um, it was found that 35% were told to 
remain silent by their colleagues and bosses about workplace sexual harassment, and when it comes to formal reporting mechanisms, only 17% of those who experienced harassment approached their organization's internal inquiry committees, um, which suggests a lack of faith in the process. You're right, Shweta, and I think this lack of faith is understandable, given how even the legislation has been weaponized against such allegations. I mean, if we take the Misha Shafi case, which is the most high-profile Me Too case in Pakistan, Ali Zafar, the alleged harasser, has filed a defamation case under the Civil Defamation Ordinance 2002 and then filed a complaint to the federal investigation agencies, Cybercrime Wing, under the Prevention of Electronic Crimes Act. Now, in 2020, the FIA booked Shafi and eight others. And since then, one of the women who was part of the case has issued an apology and then her name has been retracted from the case. That's right, Marlon. And you can see that even in uh, the Sri Lankan case, those who have followed formal processes have not seen redress. So in Sri Lanka, there's the case of Mihiri Di Silva, who did report harassment to the head of her HR department and to senior management. And there were no consequences for the perpetrator, leading to her leaving her position at a top corporate. But we're also seeing this worldwide more recently with the overturn of Bill Cosby's sexual assault conviction due to the violation of his due process rights. And of course, the acquittal of the Tehelka editor Tarun Tejpal. So in that sense, Rambukwella's promise of investigations into formal complaints is kind of an empty one. In Sri Lanka, there's also been more recent discussion that sexual harassment policies will do little by way of protection unless underlying issues of sexism are addressed. And that's definitely true. But it's also telling that despite many journalists, including the Young Journalists Association, agreeing that sexual harassment is a pervasive issue, no one has kind of discussed possible methods of redress or protection for workers. Yeah, um, and the point about institutional solutions reminds me of a recent case in Nepal uh, where this journalist who used to work at an English language daily wrote on Twitter about her being sexually harassed and threatened um, by a frequent contributor to the newspaper um, and that she told her editor about it. Now, this contributor was not an employee, but a freelance writer. You know, but regardless of, of that, I mean, what was quite shocking was that she never actually got a response from her editor or the organization on this matter. And maybe it was easier for them to do that because, you know, the perpetrator was not employed by the newspaper. Now, some people and organizations working on this issue have made the point that it's important to bring, you know, protections against sexual harassment within the larger ambit of, of labor protections. Um, and that enforcement of anti-harassment policies uh, need to be part of, you know, broader workplace rights. And, and it's not a, a separate entity. Um, also, given the fact that governments in the region have been quite willing to weaken labor protection, it's, you know, it's unfortunate, but maybe at this point essential for uh, professional groups and unions to actually start working on these more structural and um, institutional responses uh, to the issue. Speaking purely from my experiences, I know that international organizations, when they employ you as an external party, uh, say for um, on a freelance basis or for a consultancy, in addition to the contract, you are made aware of the workplace sexual harassment policies, 
child protection laws and i think this should be the standard for every organization uh, right. you know who employs external parties big corporates you know they have extensive procurement policies where their suppliers have to be responsible accountable you know when it comes to you know like um, sustainable procurement etc so the case that you alluded to shubang about the freelance journalist in nepal i don't see why these policies should not be applicable to freelancers as well i mean so that these these parties they need to be aware all parties they need to be aware responsible and accountable yeah yeah and you know with so many people working remotely now and you know just the changing nature of the workspace maybe that's the way to go so moving on to our next segment around south asian 5 minutes um raisar you want to start Yes so on June 16th the union government uh, in India circulated a statement noting that Twitter had lost its legal protection for third party content for failing to adhere to the IT rules now this means that instead of being considered just a platform hosting content from various users Twitter will be held directly and editorially responsible for any post published on its platform Um shortly before the announcement the Uttar Pradesh uh, police named Twitter in an FIR along with seven others including journalists for spreading misinformation on the attack on a 70-year-old Muslim man in Ghaziabad but internet right groups say it's not in the government's power to revoke Twitter statement uh, status as an intermediary Digital Rights Group Internet Freedom Foundation explained that the intermediary status is not a registration that is granted by the government but rather it's a technical qualification which is conferred under the IT Act. And another incident in this ongoing standoff between Twitter and the government were the recent charges against Twitter India for posting a map that showed Kashmir as a separate country. Now even after they took this map down the still facing charges so over in bangladesh the government is making preparations for uh, for its graduation from uh, an ldc uh, a least developed country into a developing country now according to the united nations capital development fund um, and according to their recommendation the transition will be effective in 2026 it means until 2026 bangladesh will be able to enjoy all these benefits that are applicable to ldcs like uh, duty free quota for exports uh, favorable intellectual property rights and foreign aid and as you might know we are currently working on a special series of articles to commemorate uh, bangladesh's 50th year since independence um watch this space and uh, go to our website for more information and in myanmar um, efforts to minimize the human and environmental cost of jade mining and trade is now at the risk of being undone uh, with the military and armed groups tightening their grip on this lucrative mineral resource um, this is according to the latest report by global witness which is an international organization that looks at um, the intersection of natural resources conflict and human rights um, this is not the first such report to be done on jade mining in myanmar and you know the the dangerous impact of this jade extraction and trade on people living mostly uh in Kachin state in northern Myanmar um it's been extensively reported um we also did a story on this in 2019 after a mining disaster killed over 50 workers 
but uh, apart from this j trade also finances conflict in the region uh, and it, it's a major source of revenue for the army which basically owns several mining operations and licenses um so now that the military government is in power the concern is that this will basically allow them to revert all the reforms made uh, by the civilian government over the last few years um on this matter and with the us troops withdrawing from afghanistan faster than anticipated the taliban has captured afghanistan's main border crossing with tajikistan which was uh, important because it controls the trade between afghanistan and the rest of central asia and after a series of takeovers in other districts throughout june about 5000 afghan families have fled their homes in the city of kunduz in northern afghanistan and now we'll be moving on to our culture section bookmarked where we'll be talking about a malayalam film called great indian kitchen and the telugu language comedy cinema bandi I'll start with my recommendation for the month which is the Telugu indie comedy Cinema Bandi directed by Praveen Kandragulla and produced by Raj and DK. Um Cinema Bandi is a simple light-hearted film with lots of snarky humor and the film is set in Golapalli a small village on the Andhra Karnataka border. Um now in this village um there's a lot of issues where like it hasn't rained in years and there's frequent power cuts and young people are uh, migrating to big cities and vira this auto rickshaw driver he finds a camera left behind in his vehicle and the story essentially follows his journey to together with this um quirky film crew that he gathers um consisting of the village wedding photographer gana a barber called mardesh and to their journey to cast and shoot this film and Marlon and Riza, you guys have watched this film as well. What did you guys think? Yeah, I really liked it. I liked how how funny it was, and I really enjoyed the kind of innovativeness of the crew and how they kind of use the tools around them to try to sh- get really interesting shots. Yeah, like waiting for the rain. I think. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, waiting for the rain and even you know the pulley system that they created to kind of get high oh, shots. Yeah. I thought that was yeah. so clever and funny. And I also kind of enjoyed how it kind of without like being preachy about it, it showed the as you mentioned Shweta the deprivation in the village by just showing like the obstacles they had to overcome just to like charge the camera for example. So I thought that that was like really interesting and it was a really funny film I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, uh, so I found it charming and I did find it funny but I didn't like it that much. I mean of course you have the juxtaposition of class and poverty and you know this noble act of um, you know creating a film to uplift the community. Yeah, you know, I got all of that but I just it just felt like i mean i don't want to be mean but i actually thought you know the premise of the story is that the you know the 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 truck driver finds a good camera and tries to shoot a film in his village i just kept thinking that maybe the director of the film just found a good camera and just decided to make a film so uh, yeah <laughs> <laughs> i mean you know one thing that i will say is that i thought the ending was a little bit kumbaya mm. in the sense that like you know it kind of felt like I mean they had such dreams for you know 
um, which was also nice. They were dreaming about being able to bring change in the village. And then that clash between the person whose camera is stolen and the villagers was interesting. But then I didn't feel like it was properly resolved. Like, I didn't feel that... I was like, what happens after that? Are they just... Are they going to, like, screen it in a cinema and, like, what happened? Yeah, the ending was definitely too perfect. Too neat. (laughs) Yeah. It was a bit kumbaya. (laughs) That was my my main... um, this thing but i did find it like kind of funny and fun yeah it was funny i mean like i love the, the photographer you know his his classic shot the titanic shot he takes out <laughs> yeah, you know, was... i didn't get it at first <laughs> i was like what is this guy doing <laughs> but then uh, i think it's mentioned at one point and i'm like ah oh, yes <laughs> it's also so relatable because if you look here like the wedding photographers exactly. here they also yeah, have yeah. these classic poses right like yeah, yeah. Which are like, yeah, the Titanic poses and like the nose is touching. So that made me really like laugh (laughs) because it's familiar. So, yeah. These are wedding shots. Are these? Yeah. 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 Because he's a wedding photographer. So he's the guy who was like, he's like uh, kind of recruited to make the film. So he has to like change the medium basically. (laughs) Yeah. And that was also the funny part. Like when he's shooting... Uh, first he just goes to what he knows yeah. so he's like asking the actor and the actress to do that titanic pose <laughs> and then the person kind of cuts in and says what are you doing just follow the script <laughs> that was also pretty funny because it was like okay I'm just going to do oh, it and the script writer was quite funny too right <laughs> that, the guy you know is just there does he speak at the end I was just like waiting for uh, he does he does says he say that, that he didn't write he, does, right? he basically implies that he didn't yes. write it <laughs> yeah Right. Which again, that was another thing. I was like, who wrote it then? <laughs> Anyways, but yeah. Yeah, so it seems I, I, I did like it, but I didn't like it that much. <laughs> <laughs> like the acting and all, I just, you know, I just couldn't like get into the spirit of it. But yeah. So my recommendation for the month um, is also a film on, on marriage, but it's not funny at all. Uh, so it's a Malayalam language film called uh, Great Indian Kitchen, uh, directed by Joe Baby. I think it's on Amazon India, if I'm not wrong, but um, it came out recently and it's it's being reviewed everywhere and uh, it's getting good reviews. So it's, it's basically about a woman who has an arranged marriage and whose life gets, you know, completely transformed when she starts living basically with her husband's family and she ends up doing, you know, all the domestic labor of the household. So it's it's kind of a, the movie is basically a critique of marriage and the, you know, the predominant form of marriage, maybe in large parts of South Asia and kind of, I think makes a point that for many women, marriage basically is a form of labor obligation to this new household you find yourself in. So it's, it's quite powerful. It's, uh, I mean, it has, I think Raisa, you've also watched it and there are other aspects of the movie also, but that was, I mean, the labor aspect was what really got me. And uh, especially those shots of, you know, the mess that people make after after the meal and someone else has to clean up on it. And I was like, okay, finally someone has made a film about South Asian men kind of leaving a mess <laughs> after the meal and not cleaning it up. <laughs> and you see what happens after that. Yeah, it's always the scrumptious feast, right? It's like the banquet. You don't see the after, yeah. like in films. And yeah, stuff. exactly. And in this case, it's a household. So it's someone who has to deal with it, you know, several times a day, every day. But yeah, the ending of the movie was, I think, like the like cinema bandhi a bit too too perfect. But uh, Raisa, what did, what did you think? 
of the film. Yeah, I mean, I also re- like. I feel like it really brought this. I think the term that is often used is uh, like unpaid care work. It kind of brought that into the foreground, and it really showed how much like additional tasks and kind of chores that women often have to take on in the context of marriage. But um, yeah, in this in this film, it was in the context of marriage, and it was you know cu- quite slow building. Like it went on for quite a long time. Uh, and not much kind of happened. It just really focused in on just the daily repetition of these tasks and like the addition, the stress kind of building up. And then, yeah, it just suddenly it started escalating. And yeah, again, the ending was a bit too neat, perhaps. But yeah, I, I kind of um, thought that it made a really important point and it kind of brought this like invisible labor into the limelight in a sense so that was pretty interesting yeah and they tried uh, and they tried to kind of relate it to also some recent political events i guess the uh, sabri mala episode uh, where women were not allowed to go to temples because they could potentially you know pollute the temple by by being in period but uh, i think i mean it, the movie isn't about that episode it it's about this woman again facing kind of constraints in the household during period but uh, yeah i mean that was kind of the latter half of the film i guess yeah that was definitely interesting as well and yeah you could see that that judgment was kind of uh, unfolding in the backdrop and then you know she was also negotiating what that meant for her as like someone who's like supposed to be kind of doing all this task but it that was also interesting the way that even then it was just passed off to somebody else and it was just this endless cycle of like these tasks that had to be completed. So mm. I thought that was also quite interesting. And it's also relevant to Sri Lanka because we do have similar practices here, not necessarily about like pe- temple entry, but, you know, there's quite a few children who don't go to school, for example, um when they get their period and so this i was kind of thinking about that as well when i watched that part but yeah on that note um that's it for this edition of south asia sphere uh do head to our website himalmag.com to see the cartoons illustrating this episode by gihandi chikera and while you're at it check out our membership plans and support our work thanks everyone bye 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 For more Himal podcasts, go to himalmag.com/podcasts.